begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying the Alma Redemptoris Mater. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving Mother of the Redeemer, Gate of Heaven, Star of the Sea, assist your people who have fallen, yet strive to rise again. To the wonderment of nature, you bore your Creator, yet remained a virgin after, as before. You who received Gabriel's joyful greeting, have pity on us, poor sinners. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we're heading to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite interviews of days gone by. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Amy Alsnauer. She's the author of a few children's books, uh, including The Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor. And so we talk to her a lot about Flannery O'Connor-related things here on the show. Amy, welcome back. Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here. So the beginning of... The month of January, uh, you know, after we've gotten a little bit of distance from Christmas, we celebrate the Epiphany, where a fairly surprising group of people who are, uh, you know, not really expected to be part of the Christmas story, who come from the East, who come from a completely different place, are suddenly cut in on the story of the gospel message. And so we call that Epiphany. And in a sense, Epiphany really can refer to any kind of just a shot of grace, a realization um, that can dawn on any of us. How did Flannery O'Connor use that over and over and over again as a storytelling mechanism? You know, um, she, I think to understand how she's used that, you have to understand the original revelation or epiphany in her own life, and that was the death of her father. And I was just in the Flannery O'Connor archives um, a couple weeks ago, right before Christmas, and I found this passage again and reminded myself it's in this sort of nondescript journal from college, and you can tell it's from college because she has this list of all her classes and her grades um, that she writes in the front of it. But all of a sudden, in the middle of this, she has this paragraph about the death of her father, looking back, which happened just a couple years before. And, it, and this is what she writes. It's so beautiful. She says, the reality of death has come suddenly upon us. And the power of God has broken our complacency like a sharp arrow in the side. And then she crosses it out, and she writes, like a bullet in the side. A sense of the dramatic, of the infinite, of the tragic has descended upon us, filling us with grief, but even above grief, wonder. And if that's not a statement of epiphany, I don't know what is. And, and that's her revelation. That's her epiphany that I think if she hadn't had that, I'm not sure we would have O'Connor in the form that we have her in. Well, and if you don't get that, then you kind of are like, why are Catholics reading this weird stuff? Right. (laughs) Right. Oh, no, that's perfect, Matt. You are right. You have to get that. If you don't understand that, I mean, like Flannery (laughs) O'Connor, I know lots of people, and I talked to somebody the other day, uh, you know, who was like, 
I don't get why all these people are like Flannery O'Connor is this great, <laughs> amazing Catholic writer. She's like horrifying. Like, what is Catholic about any of this stuff? But that's what it is. Right. I totally agree. So many people feel that way about O'Connor. And honestly, I mean, I've talked to professors who try to teach her, and people do, especially, I mean, even if you're Christian and, and you don't yet understand that aspect of our faith, um, you can find this completely horrifying, and you don't realize that that the form of good— one, one thing she says that I think is so beautiful is that we're very used to looking in the face of evil and seeing our own grinning faces looking back, but what we're less used to is realizing that the face of good in us, in fallen humanity, is also grotesque, and that it's a work in progress. I love that, because I feel like in that we see that a lot of her moments of revelation actually come in really grotesque forms. And they come in in really odd and bizarre ways, uh, yes. like, you know, Enoch Emery stealing a gorilla suit, or they come in sometimes really <laughs> mundane ways. Um, and I won't spoil exactly where I'm going with this, but um, I, I wonder if there is a specific maybe epiphany in uh, one of her stories that you think shows this fourth really well. If you share one, I'll share one of mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to sh- I was going to share also an uh, a, a really early one, which is this little story she wrote called Mistaken Identity, where you see um, where it's about this goose that she had that everybody thinks is um, a male goose until they try to bring these female geese in, and then suddenly um, this this male goose is very upset that this male goose they think is a male goose, and then this goose lays an egg, and. She says, suddenly I saw the light, and that is exactly—she's writing this at 15 years old. I saw the light. Same year her father died, I saw the light. And in all of her stories, there's that moment of seeing the light, right? Of course, a good man is hard to find, everybody. When she gets shot, it's that bullet in the side, right? She sees the light, and she sees that the misfit is her own child. She has that moment of, like, radical compassion. Well, and that's got the shocking— uh, epiphany at the end that's pointed back at us where the misfit says right. well, she would have been a great woman if there'd been somebody to shoot her every day of her life it's, right exactly it was exactly at, in the face of death she saw her murderer as a child of god you know that's as a like child that. of god yes beautifully it's said a, it's, exactly heartbreaking uh, you know kind of epiphany but i was thinking of mrs turpin in the in the doctor's office in the story revelation right. where she's sitting there and judging all these people and you know, judging this one, you know, lady's daughter and the daughter, you know, she thinks she's this extremely pious person. And then the daughter, you know, sick of the way she's staring at him, jumps, just staring at her, jumps up and grabs her and yells at her and calls her a warthog from hell. So here's this woman. Yeah, she has to throws a book across the room and like hits her in the head and then tries to strangle her. Right, <laughs> so. right. So, so here's this woman who thinks she's entirely pious, who's just been called a warthog. And then she yes. has this vision uh, where she sees all these people she's been judging in the ho- in the hospital waiting room, uh, all entering heaven, yeah. and they're at the front of the line, and she's at the back of it. And suddenly she starts right. to realize kind of the order of things, and it's this moment of grace for her and and uh, a realization of of you know kind of where she stands in the order of things and how she ought to sort of rethink her life. And I think we've all had moments like that. I mean, I've never had a book thrown at me and somebody strangle <laughs> me and call me a warthog, but I've had. I've had my bell rung uh, when oh, I thought yeah. that I was the guy, you know, who had it together and something happened and it realized I realized I was not uh, the hero in this situation. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so well said. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting that you use the word grace because the, the girl um, in this story who 
That's wrote right. the book at her is named Mary Grace. Mary Grace. And a, uh, yeah, and a lot of people think of her, I, a lot of commentary, and I've, I've gotten this reading Sonia Connor's letters, a lot of people think of her as evil. But if you... If, I think, first of all, if you read the story closely, but if you know more about Flannery O'Connor, she she doesn't hate Mary Grace. She actually says explicitly, I like Mrs. Turpin as well as Mary Grace. Um, and she says that she'd found the character Mary Grace in her own head from reading too much theology. And there's this other wonderful little anecdote along these lines. Marriott Lee was one of the main people, a very good friend, somebody she wrote back and forth with. And Marriott Lee's niece said to Marriott, why did O'Connor make Mary Grace so ugly? And Marriott Lee said, because Flannery loves her. In Flannery comments, that's very perceptive. And I think it's in Mary Grace we see that exact thing we're talking about is that revelation often comes from these sort of ugly, grotesque forms. But it's very clear in the story that, that Mary Grace is an agent of God, right? She is the angel. And, and actually, Flannery calls Mrs. Turpin, the one who has this revelation, she calls her a country female Jacob, meaning She's the one wrestling with the angel, and I love that, the whole idea that you have to wrestle with the angel. Well, I love the fact that she loved both Mary Grace and Mrs. Turpin. Yes. You know, there's there's this impulse in so many of us that's like God, uh, you know, uh, loves the poor and he despises the rich, when in fact, uh, you know, he wants them both in heaven, (laughs) right? That's kind of the whole thing. But right. uh, Amy Alsenauer, I encourage people to go pick up your book, The Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor, including a bunch of others that you've written that are really cool uh, educational books that are beautifully illustrated for kids. Thank you. Uh, linked yes, at sunrisemorningshow.com. So Have a great one. Okay, thanks so much, Matt. Take care. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. And click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonrisemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonrisemorningshow.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. 
you to welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director for EWTN News. Good morning, Doc. Very good to be with you. It is good to have you. And we are going to talk today about St. Thomas Beckett, whose feast is celebrated during the Christmas octave on December 29th. And it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it, Doc, that as we have essentially like this eight-day-long birthday celebration, the church gives us this string of martyrs to remember in the wake of Christmas. <laughs> it really does. And I think for us, uh, those feast days, starting with Beckett, of course, and we're focusing on him today, reminds us of the suffering of those who believe uh, that we must be willing to give our our lives for Christ. Uh, but then, of course, why we celebrate Christmas as the incarnation, but then Christ gave his life for us. So these, these martyrs, uh, holy innocents, for example, are great role models for us in that remembering of, of why we love Christ, but what Christ always did for us. And in that sense, Beckett, I think, is a particularly powerful example. I completely agree. And it is, it's kind of cool to think about what you just said in light of the, the very different stories that we have. And, you know, St. Stephen, our first martyr on the 26th, That's right. and then uh, St. John, who is considered a martyr for the faith on the 27th, the Holy Innocence, as you were saying, on the 28th, and then the 29th with St. Thomas Beckett who we'll be uh, talking about today. So tell us about his rise in prominence in the church, and how did he become friends with King Henry II? <laughs> well, there's a famous uh, word, Cheapside, and Cheapside is, is a place in London, and it is where Thomas Beckett was born. He was the son, we know, of Normans, in other words, uh, from Normandy, who had conquered England not that long before the birth of Thomas. His father, Gilbert, his mother, Matilda, his father uh, was uh, a minor lordship, and, and he was uh, probably a, what is called a petty knight. And through family connections, he was able to get a very good education. And then, uh, as a man of uh, talent and ambition, and Beckett had plenty of both, mm-hmm. uh, he was really able to work his way into the royal court, and he came to the attention of uh, King Henry, and it is uh, that relationship with, between Becket and Henry II uh, that became almost the stuff of legend in England at the time, because in, in Henry, uh, Becket saw somebody that, uh, who was ambitious like himself, talented like himself, and in Becket, Henry saw what I think was uh, not this just an immensely talented person, but somebody that uh, who could become his great implementer and executor of his will, which is why he made uh, Beckett Lord Chancellor in 1155. And then, of course, very famously, thinking he could use Beckett to control the church, Henry then he found a way to have him appointed Archbishop of Canterbury in 1162 over, significantly, Beckett's own objections. Yeah, so... Talk about Beckett and his faith in this time. Was he devout, not devout? Where was he in in terms of, because of, there's, you know, the Beckett on the screen, and you wonder um, <laughs> yes. how much that lines up with, with the Beckett of, of history. He was not the, the, um, the level of dissolution that we sometimes see on the screen wasn't there. He was, however, very political, and 
what we begin to see with his emergence as Archbishop of Canterbury, with his transformation uh, into a man of deep prayer. Uh, but we have to understand Beckett a little better. This is somebody, yes, he had ambition, yes, he had great talent, but this is somebody who also understood that he would give of himself completely. And when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, by his personality, by his disposition, by his prayer life, but especially by that call to holiness, he gave of himself completely, no longer to the king, but to the church, to Christ. And in that sense, we see in this transformation of Beckett into a profound man of prayer, a profound priest and bishop, but also somebody who led a deeply ascetic life, that a clash, that war between the two of them was going to be inevitable. And Henry, I think, understood very quickly the mistake he had made by appointing a man of such skill, but a man of such commitment to this position. I love how you say it was an error. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> Beckett, the right person for the job, huh? Can you talk about their, I, I guess you could call it their falling out? Yes. Well, the ambition of the king was always to control the church as best as he could. And that is why he wanted Beckett to be in this position as Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the primatial see, and, and to also retain for as long as he could the office of chancellor. That became incompatible, so Beckett resigned the chancellorship. That was the first blow. The next was uh, Beckett's opposition to something that was very important to Henry, and that was control of the royal courts uh, over the church, in particular the church courts. There's a, a term called criminous clerks. That was the phrase that was used for priests who might uh, commit a crime. They would be tried in a church court, an ecclesiastical court, and not a royal court. And so the great moment of break came when Henry tried to impose what was called the Constitutions of Clarendon, where he was essentially going to impose the royal will over the church's courts and the criminous clerks of England. And that was something that Beckett simply would not do. And from really that moment uh, at this great council in Northampton, when Beckett walked away from his friend, walked away from the king, the, the relationship with the, between the two was broken forever. Beckett understood the threat he was under, fled the continent uh, to France, spent years in exile. And the two of them began this unbelievable chess game of diplomacy, of ecclesiastical law, of prayer, of admonition. Uh, and it was a game that went on for years, culminating, of course, uh, with Beckett's return to England very briefly uh, before his final assassination, uh, and very famously his martyrdom in, in Canterbury Cathedral. And tell us about that martyrdom. Well, this is um, an episode that has been recorded over the years. Two in particular, I think, uh, are memorable. One is by Edward Grimm, who is a, a monk uh, who gave a, a first-hand account, and another by the name of Gervais of Canterbury. Henry, exasperated, uh, supposedly, again, very famously said, well, no one rid me of this meddlesome priest. Now, there are different versions of that. Four of his knights, Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy, and Richard Le Breton, set out for Canterbury, and on December 29th, 1170, reached Canterbury. It's hard to know exactly what they intended. Uh, it was certainly to do something to Thomas, but what, by the time of the end of their visit, 
Beckett was dead. And very famously, they, they came through the cathedral door, murdered Beckett, and one of them said, let us go, we shall rise no more. Mm. Well, <laughs> how wrong were they? I mean, a man who was <laughs> almost immediately venerated. One of the great martyrs in the history of the church and one of the great models for us in the defense of religious freedom. Amen to that. St. Thomas Beckett, pray for, pray for us. us. We've been talking about St. Thomas Beckett, whose feast is December 29th with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Doc, thank you so much. God bless and Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you and Merry Christmas to you as well. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Cold mornings get a little better when you've got a good cup of hot coffee or tea to help warm you up and perk you up. And look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee for some delicious flavors made by real monks. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you support both the monks and the show because we get a commission every time you click that link and buy their products. You can also purchase Sunrise Morning Show mugs and travel mugs, both $10 in our online store. You can purchase those mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. The Father chose Mary to be holy and blameless before Him in love. Hello, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney from Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish, inviting you to take a moment to reflect on words from the Catechism of the Catholic Church about Mary, the mother of Jesus. In paragraph number 492 of the Catechism, we read the following. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception by reason of the merits of her Son. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love. We can be sure that Mary's invitation to become the mother of God was a part of His plan throughout all of time, long before she was born, before anyone was born, so blessed was she, as she is today. And thus we turn to her in time of need, asking her to intercede for us with her Son. May we fashion our lives after hers, that we too will be blessed and in turn bring honor, praise, and glory to Him, as Mary does constantly. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. Joined now by Dr. John Bergsma, who is the author of Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of Christianity. Good morning, Dr. Bergsma. Hey, it's great to be on with you, Matt. So when it comes to the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, I think for the casual observer, they're, they're like, oh yeah, they found a bunch of pieces of the Bible back in the caves. And they did find some pieces of the Bible in the caves. They found a bunch of other stuff too. But when it comes to the biblical texts that were found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what is there? Yes, you know, there is a lot, Matt. Probably the best known and favorite example that everybody gives is what we call the Great Isaiah Scroll. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of the, the, the best piece that we found. A complete copy of the book of Isaiah dating possibly as early as 250 years before the birth of our Lord. 250 B.C., in just a pristine state of preservation, just 
the, the leather, it's written on parchment, which is leather. Uh, leather was in beautiful shape. Handwriting was clear. Uh, just an amazing find. And, and to put that in perspective, Matt, like the oldest complete copy of a book of the Old Testament that we had before this discovery was maybe from around 1000 A.D., okay? Wow. So with one discovery, just moved ahead, you know, like a, a thousand, maybe, you know, 1,200 years earlier than, than any complete copy we had had before. So that was super nice. Um, most of the other copies of biblical books were in more, um, you know, fragmentary condition, but we found... You know, all of Isaiah and a lot of the other prophets, a lot of the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, um, most of the Psalms. Uh, so a lot of good stuff. Yeah, there's a lot that's fascinating in here. I'm trying to figure out which of these documents I want to ask questions about. Well, you know, what? I'll go full nerdy and ask about the Pesharim. Yeah, you bet. So this is, you know, uh, again, these are the oldest uh, examples of commentaries. You know, we're all familiar with Bible commentaries. You can, you know, buy them online, buy them at the local Catholic bookstore. So these are the oldest examples of commentaries on the Bible that that we have in existence. And um, what these, uh, what the Essenes did, who were living at this site, was they went through the prophets and they interpreted current events in light of what the prophets said. They really were convinced that the things that were happening to them in their life in their lifetime had been uh, prophesied by Habakkuk and Nahum and uh, even in the Psalms. And um, you know, we see something very similar with the apostles. They were convinced that within their own lifetime, in the ministry of Jesus, the prophecies of old uh, were being fulfilled. So there's a kind of a similarity there. Yeah, and many of them were fulfilled. Um... That being said, uh, you mentioned that these Essenes, you know, part of the reason that they went off into the wilderness and uh, formed up a, a group of people under a rule was because, you know, they thought that the end was coming soon. And there's a few apocalyptic documents that are among these. Sure. very, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one in particular, a favorite of mine is, the scholars call it 11Q Melchizedek, because it was found in the 11th cave, and it's about Melchizedek. But it's a prophetic document where they were expecting that a priest king like Melchizedek was going to come back at the end of time and proclaim uh, the, the final year of Jubilee, which would involve forgiveness of sins and uh, freedom from Satan. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating, Matt, because we find something very similar in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, which basically says that Jesus is the Melchizedek uh, of old. And um, even in what, what we see our Lord doing in the Gospel of Luke, he fulfills all these rules, uh, all these expectations, I should say, of, you know, proclaiming forgiveness of sins and freeing people from the power of Satan through his exorcisms. So, um, you know, our, our Lord fits the bill, so to speak, in terms of what they were expecting, in terms of a priest-king at the end of the time, who was kind of in the mold of this ancient priest-king Melchizedek. All right, so what fascinates me about the men of Qumran, uh, that's the, the crew from whom we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, the things they were inferring from the Old Testament, from the, to them it was the whole Bible, right, uh, about what the Messiah would be like and who the Messiah would be, Man, they got a lot of things kind of right. They did. 
you know, and uh, I think it's just because they were prayerfully pondering the scriptures, and God answers prayer, um, even if not all your ideas are correct. God still will answer your prayers. So yeah, so I think they um, they discerned a lot of things. They were really expecting two messiahs, Matt, and people find that a little bit unusual. Yeah, so what kind of messiahs were they wanting in a one-two punch? Yeah, well, based on texts like in Zechariah um, that speak of two sons of oil, you know, and, and the word messiah means smeared with oil. Uh, I don't know if we think about that very much, but, you know, we worship the smeared one. That's kind of what Christ or Messiah means. But anyway, uh, be that as it may, they expected a priestly Messiah, one from the line of Aaron, uh, who was the original high priest, and they expected a royal Messiah, a son of David. Uh, So, yeah, so church and state, uh, you know, priest and king, they uh, expected uh, two guys, and the priestly one was slightly more important. Well, what's crazy is that they got both of those guys, except it was just one guy. Yes. They eventually found, uh, well, they, uh, I think many of the Essenes eventually found in Jesus uh, both their priest and uh, their high their high king. But, uh, but, you know, it's interesting, Matt, the Gospel of Luke seems to be written in such a way to kind of evangelize these Essenes with their Messianic expectations. Wow, that is pretty interesting uh, to think about. So what are the clues in Luke that make, might make it, uh, might, might, might make that case? Well, you know, when you pick up Luke, you notice that it doesn't begin right away with the birth of Jesus. It begins with John the Baptist. Actually, even farther back, it begins with John's father, who significantly is a priest, and he's in the temple. And remember, priesthood goes from father to son. So if his father was a high-ranking priest, which apparently he was, Zechariah, that would mean John, likewise, has priestly status. John the Baptist, of course, this promised son. So Luke begins with John the Baptist, who's this priestly and prophetic figure. Like, why spend so much time on him? And then he, of course, paves the way and introduces and anoints Jesus, who's obviously the royal uh, Messiah with the line, for the line of David, as we see in Luke chapter 3. Matt, what I argue is um, St. Luke is showing us that John the Baptist and Jesus really answer to this expectation that these folks had, that they were going to get an anointed one from the priestly line and an anointed one from the royal line. So a two-for-one deal, as far as the Essenes were concerned. Exactly, if you look at it that way. Now, from another sense, too, you know, the priesthood is, of course, belongs to, to Christ. Um, but it's interesting, uh, you know, Matt, if you look back at David and his sons in the Old Testament, they had a priestly status. The last verse of First uh, Samuel 8, uh, sorry, Second Samuel 8, says that David's pre- sons were priests. That's really overlooked, but, um, you know, the kind of priesthood that our Lord had, I would say it goes back to the line of David, which, which had 
in addition to a kingly status, they also had this priestly role, which goes back well, to Melchizedek. But that's a long story. Look at yeah, I mean, you can even look back to Adam in the Garden of Eden, who is a king and a priest uh, in two very real senses. All right, so in Daniel nine, there's all these things that are thrown out there. So there'll be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, and all these other kinds of things that are happening. I wonder how the Essenes looked at that text from Gabriel from uh, Daniel, which is actually an interaction with Gabriel. It is, you know, it's super fascinating, um, Matt. But they were using uh, Daniel uh, nine to um, predict the return or the coming of uh, the Messiah. And there's a number of documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and some others in, in um, you know, other Jewish writing of that time period that try to predict when the Messiah is co- going to come based on those cycles of 49 years. It really goes back to the Jubilee year, which is what I did my dissertation on, you know, for what it's worth. Um, the Jubilee year occurred every 49 years on a cycle based on Leviticus 25, and there was a common expe- expectation that after, a, after 10 Jubilee cycles, the Messiah was going to come. And the start of those 10 cycles, a lot of uh, Jews put back in the time of Daniel. Now, Daniel is, you know, living, writing around 500 B.C., So, you know, 10 Jubilee cycles puts you around the time of the coming of our Lord. So that's why there was such fervor when our Lord was uh, active in his ministry, because folks were indeed, based on Daniel, expecting the Messiah at any moment. Including this crew of people who went out to Qumran because it was east of Jerusalem, because they thought the Messiah might be approaching from the east. I mean, there's all kinds of things in this. Uh, that talk about what kind of person or persons, as you say, what do you call it? What's the what's the twenty dollar word you use? The some, die something or whatever messianic something or other. Diarchic messianism. <laughs> Diarchic messianism. It's a real mouthful. But that's a, it's a really complicated way of saying you're expecting two messiahs. So yes, diarchic messianism. <laughs> you know, I mean, who says you don't learn stuff on the Sunrise Morning Show? The book is called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of Christianity with Dr. John Bergsma. And thanks so much, Dr. Bergsma. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. This is Father Benedict O'Kinsla from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Cincinnati for Sacred Heart Catholic Radio. In October, we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. Generations of Catholics are so familiar with the Rosary that it is hard to imagine that there was a time when the Rosary was not part of the devotional and liturgical life of the Church. In fact, the Rosary as we know it came into its present form during the 12th century. Catholic tradition associates the devotion with St. Dominic and the Dominicans, although different forms of the rosary were in use before the birth of St. Dominic. The Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, originally entitled St. Mary of Victory, was instituted by the Dominican Pope Pius V in 1571 after the defeat of the invading Turkish fleet at the Battle of Lepanto. The title of the feast was changed to Our Lady of the Rosary in 1960. The Feast of the Holy Rosary reminds us that it is through the redemption, the birth, death, 
and resurrection of the Lord, that we have victory over the powers of evil, and it is through Christ that a new kingdom comes into existence. The rosary also reminds us that God desires that we participate in the transformation of creation, so that with Christ we may offer it back to God in glory. Although we normally associate the rosary with private devotion, Pope Paul VI, in his encyclical on Marian devotion, actually calls the rosary a liturgical prayer. Let us pray with the angel Gabriel. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. It is the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Father Patrick Briscoe from Our Sunday Visitor. Father, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great to be with you in the new year. Yeah, great to be with you in the new year as well. And as the focus shifts from the birth of Christ to how people reacted to the birth of Christ, I mean, that's really kind of uh, what Epiphany really calls us to reflect upon. Uh, you wrote a piece about the Magi as stargazers uh, and how we should be stargazers as well. I, I wonder, uh, when you look at the stars, what kind of things do you think about? So I just think that we're, we're often so overcome by the stars uh, when we when we look up to the heavens, right? There's this quote from Lorenzo Abbasete, who was a, a priest and a physicist. He was r- really a very entertaining guy. He was Puerto Rican and uh, just had a just had a great spirit about him. But Monsignor Abbasete says that the stars are the symbols of infinity, of the eternal beyond, of the mystery for which our hearts thirst. And I love that. I think when we when we look up at the night sky, when we look up at the stars, we're being drawn out of ourselves, being called out of ourselves, being called to think about the nature of our existence, about what life means, and about the God who made the heavens and the earth. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. And we kind of have to balance this this question of, uh, you know, us being made in the image of God and, you know, have this infinite love that God has for us and how each of us is unique, each of us is willed, each of us is meant to be, and yet each of us is a very, very tiny speck in a ginormous universe that is impossible to fit even the number of how many stars there are in it into our brains. Yeah, I love that point. That was just so big. Uh, I had an email exchange with another Dominican friend to make sure I understood, but when you look up at the night sky, you could, the human eye can see on a clear night, apparently, somewhere between two and 6,000 stars, depending, right? But that's just that's a, a minuscule number because according to some estimates, there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe, which is incredible. That doesn't even sound like a real number. <laughs> I know, it sounds like a typo. Well, as... Uh... As, as it says in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, uh, space is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. So, I mean, we're dealing with some big stuff. So when the Magi are looking upwards, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't think it would take bravery to look up at the stars and walk ahead. But when you start to think about the vastness of the universe and then a star that has a specific meaning. I mean, this really did take courage for them to 
to look at the sky and say, you know what, that is the most mysterious thing that we can even contemplate, and yet we're going to take our cues from it. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's sort of what I'm musing about in the article, because I think that um, I think that there's an unwillingness to philosophize and an unwillingness to to journey. Right? We talk about Christian life as a as a pilgrimage, and um, and I think people people are there, there's just such a such a sense of fear about pursuing life um, life lived to the full. You know, and I'm not advocating for doing any, anything irrational here, but, uh, but, I'm, I, but I am commenting on the times. And I am saying how the Magi lead us to understand our humanity better and lead us to the Lord better. Yeah, there's, there's so much in that, that point that you make. Um, you know, when we—I watch a lot of nature documentaries, and uh, I wish I could watch more creation documentaries— because I think there fundamentally is a difference uh, between referring to everything we see up there as nature and everything we see up there as creation. Nature just means it's just right. there, right? A creation means right. that this was made by somebody. Um, and the Magi, you know, they were, in some senses, scientists, right? Uh, they were also theologians. They were a whole bunch of different things, right? We don't know exactly the, the, the whole full range of what they were. Uh, but they knew um, that this journey was going to cause some hardship on them. That's the second point you make. Uh, how do you see them as models of being willing to undergo hardship in our search for the truth? Right. Well, I got to, I got to this idea that the um, the Magi are examples of of the suffering from the first lines of T. S. Eliot's poem, "The Journey of the Magi," uh, which begins with one of the one of the kings reflecting, saying. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of year for a journey, and such a long journey. Uh, and it, it reminded me of all the pilgrimages that I've taken in, in life, and to do any kind of traveling, to set out uh, means you're going to be uncomfortable, right? There are, just, there are just risks involved, and things go wrong when you travel, and it's, and it's really a hardship, which is why the analogy for Christian life as a pilgrimage or, or the search for God as a pilgrimage, it's so important, right? Um, that there's there's going to be a cost, there's going to be risks, it's going to be uncomfortable, uh, but but because of you know the kind of call to the infinite, the call to mystery, the call to the great beyond, uh, we we have to set out on the journey. We we have to embrace it. Um, we need that first that virtue of courage um, to to set out, but then we need to be able to. Sustained. We need to be able to suffer well. We need to be able to travel well um, as wayfarers. Yeah, there's there's a a sense of adventure in that uh, if you take it the right way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you can if if you take it the wrong way, you're like, oh no, here comes a terrible time. If you take it the right way, (laughs) uh, you know, it's it's an adventure, And, and I mean, the Christian life. Uh, for for people who have the wrong perspective, can you know? And there have been whole denominations built on this concept over the years. Whole uh, religious movements uh, built on this concept that Christianity must be about misery and suffering. And if you enjoy something too much, uh, if you have any joy in it, then maybe it's bad or from the devil. <laughs> I was talking to a guy recently. He was a Baptist who was uh, feeling drawn to the church. He's a Catholic priest now. And once he started to get closer and closer to uh, belief in the Eucharist and belief in, uh, you know, the, the, the church being the church that Christ founded, 
he got excited and that's when something clicked in him that he thought maybe if it seems this enjoyable and this joyful and this good maybe there's something wrong with it right uh, wow. and, and and i think that sometimes we can think to ourselves that maybe uh i don't know maybe th- this this path that we're on if it's exciting it can't be good that we have to be morose and hard on ourselves and have a bad time if we want to be christians when in fact it's an adventure and an adventure is a mix of excitement and hardship right right yeah and that point is written really you know i was thinking of the way that young people think about traveling right they, they want uh, they, they long for experiences that are uh, that are just, that are just satisfying in every respect. Right when when you talk to young people about what they want to do with their lives, right? they say like, "Well, I want to travel. I want to see the world." Uh, and I always think like, "You don't know what that's going to be like." They <laughs> <laughs> they they have a kind of romantic vision of of what it means to travel, but but it lacks the kind of um, uh, appreciation for what exactly that's going to mean. Because to travel is to change. And to, to change is, is a difficult process. Right. Uh, you know, and, you know, you don't, you haven't really traveled until you've become sick in another country, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's when <laughs> yeah, you know. Exactly. It. That's right. <laughs> uh, but you also, this final point, and, uh, you know, this is, I, I guess, where we need to wind things down is uh, that, like the Magi, we must be generous. We go uh, with hands free to give on that journey. And uh, you, you go into this uh, quite a bit, actually in the article. And, you know, that's what you have to be when you're looking up at the stars and realizing how much of the world that God created does not belong to you, right? None of it belongs to you, in fact. Uh, but uh, these are great points all throughout the article at Alatea. Stargazing and Truth Seeking is the title. It's linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Father Patrick Briscoe, thank you again, and have a great new year. My pleasure. God bless you. Great being with you. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of a Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. The Christmas Means Life campaign encourages you to add another person to your Christmas list, the baby Jesus, as represented by women and children in need by making a donation to your local pregnancy center. Another option is to support the JP2 Life Center, committed to saving lives with free pregnancy help services, holistic OBGYN care, and education programs. Find out more at jpiilifecenter.org. That's jpiilifecenter.org. Because Christmas means life. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. Order the free digital training and facilitator manual. LordTeachMeToPray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Hello, I'm Kristalina Everett, host of Women Made New. Each week, we sit down with our guests to discuss a range of issues confronting us as Catholic women in today's ever-changing society. 
Together we can grow in our relationships with God and each other. You are not alone and let's heal our brokenness together where women help women get closer to God on Women Made News Saturdays at noon Eastern on EWTN Radio. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. John Cudaback. He's a philosophy professor at Christendom College. You can find his blog and other free resources for living the good life at life-craft.org. Good morning, Dr. Cudaback. Welcome back. Good morning, Annie. It's good to have you. And I, I just have to say, it seemed a little too graphic of a notion to discuss while people are eating breakfast. Um, so instead of discussing your blog post on slaughtering pigs— in the good life. Uh, we're going to talk about living in the moment instead. Um, perfect, perfect. If folks want to read about slaughtering pigs, go to life-craft.org and you can find his post. But it any- does go with breakfast in some sense. Yeah, so that's I won't, true. I won't push the matter. <laughs> it's a great point. Your site used to be called Bacon from Acorns. Go find out what that means over at his site too. Anyway, living in the moment. Dr. Cutterback, what does that even mean? Great, great question, Annie, as usual, and uh, that's, that's uh, you know, it points to something that we need to be working on. Um, as a philosopher might say, the only thing that really exists is the present. Hmm. We, we need to learn to live in the present because the present is what is. It's not that there's no reality at all to the past or that there's nothing to looking to the future, but our looking to the past and our looking to the future is always about enhancing living in the present. Hmm. And so you might say someone who looks to the past in an appropriate way is someone who knows not to look to the past in such a way that it doesn't take him in some sense away from or diminish his being able to be present in the present. And the same thing about the future. There's a right way to look to the future in a way that enhances and deepens how I am living now, or there's a way of, and this is often connected with fear, because fear is always kind of future-looking, there's a way of, in inappropriate fear, being removed from the present. I'm kind of living in my fear about what's going to happen next, and I'm taken away from what's going on right now. Well, longtime listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show will probably recognize this quote because I quote it often. It struck me um, when I read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis um, when, when Screwtape wrote that the present is the time that touches eternity. What do you think about that? Nice. I really, I, I really like that. And, and, and of course, eternity is, I mean, is itself. Uh, very hard for us to get our mind around, but one way of seeing what eternity is, is the ever-present, ongoing present. So it makes sense that the present it, for us touches the present for God. His presence is the eternal present. Well, let's talk about something written by C.S. Lewis's friend Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. Tell us about the example of the town of Rivendell in that book. Yeah, I, you know, I just I think Tolkien had such an incredible, incredible insight. I, I, I let, let me just read this 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 line that I used for this uh, Wednesday quote to which you're referring. 
the future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Mm. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. He, he, he's, I, I really, really recommend the trilogy, uh, The Lord of the Rings, because the Rivendell, and then there's actually another place that they stop in Loch Lorien, where they spend time with elves. There's just, uh, Tolkien does something very, very powerful with the elves as having this ability for the, a deeper kind of richness. I'm going to put it this way, a deeper human richness. This ability to be in the present, this ability to be together, this ability to have a kind of contemplative richness in the simple daily things, the song, the eating together. It, it, it brings to our imagination, it fires our imagination with something so rich, but that today we have to be very intentional to make happen in our homes. Does this mean that we ignore or forget the past or, or not plan for the future? I mean, how do we find the balance needed to effectively live in the present? You know, and of course, again, the great question. And, and, and as so many of those key balances in life, there's no way to, to express perfectly in words what that balance is other than to keep kind of, as it were, circling around it and trying to better conceptualize it. And, and the key I say here is to recognize it, the, the being aware of and looking to the past and the future is essential, right? They, they are memory done right is a way of having the past continually enrich the present. But again, memory done wrong will take you away. Kind of living in memory in the negative way, normally it's a kind of regret. It's this wistfulness that, is, that isn't living in the confidence that life now is where I can thrive. Right now is what I'm really called to. We want something from the past to more, and so we live in the past. That, that's memory in the bad sense. Or look into the future with fear. Oh my, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do then? What am I going to do then? And so I'm not focusing on what I should be doing now versus look into the future in such a way that, okay, I'm prepared for that. He, when he says it, it, it ceased to have any power over the present, the future, good or ill, it was not forgotten, but it ceased to have any power, any negative power, any power of taking us away from where we are, aware of what's to come. And this is why the trilogy is so great. There's many great evils that they know are coming, and they're getting ready to face but it doesn't take them away. It actually re-intensifies their focus on what they're doing now. That's what we need to learn from them, especially in these, in many ways, to use a Tolkienian phrase, in these darkening days, to not, to not be afraid, but to be re-inspired to say, we need to make mealtime, precious time. We need to be sitting down around the fire. That's why I did this particularly at Christmas time. Right. Let, let's be taking times now in winter where we're getting together and being with the family. Ordinary things and friends, ordinary things, go deeper, come alive. Don't live in fear. Don't live constantly thinking about what's going to happen next. Live rich now. Just listening to you in this past minute or so, Dr. Cutterback, I mean, what you're describing, I think, is the church in her essence, 
of of taking the memory and using it for today and living today in such a way as to prepare us to live without fear of the future. It's just absolutely beautiful. Amen. St. Paul, have no anxiety. Have no anxiety. Amen. We've been talking to Dr. John Cutterback. You can find all of his blog posts and resources at life-craft.org. And by the way, his philosophy course that we just completed at the Institute of Catholic Culture is now available to take at your own pace at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Dr. Cutterback, thank you so much. Always great to be with you, Annie. It's always great to have you, Dr. Cutterback. Thanks again. Well, that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Hope you've enjoyed the previous hour. Thanks so much for joining us. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. It's always harder to get out of bed when it's cold outside. So give yourself something to look forward to, like Mystic Monk Coffee for the first cup of the day. You can find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, and we earn a commission on anything you buy through that link. You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can buy through our online store. Check out the mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Let us pray. The Litany of St. Joseph with Bishop Joseph Binzer and the seminarians from Mount St. Mary Seminary. Litany of St. Joseph, Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. Christ, graciously hear us. God, the Father of heaven, have mercy on us. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy on us. God, the Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. Holy Trinity, one God, Have mercy on us. Holy Mary, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Renowned offspring of David, pray for us. Light of patriarchs, pray for us. Spouse of the Mother of God, pray for us. Chaste guardian of the Virgin, pray for us. Foster father of the Son of God, pray for us. Diligent protector of Christ, pray for us. Head of the Holy Family, pray for us. Joseph, most just, Pray for us. Joseph, most chaste. Pray for us. Joseph, most prudent. Pray for us. Joseph, most strong. Pray for us. Joseph, most obedient. Pray for us. Joseph, most faithful. Pray for us. Mirror of patience. Pray for us. Lover of poverty. Pray for us. Model of artisans. Pray for us. Glory of home life. Pray for us. Guardian of virgins. Pray for us. Pillar of families, pray for us. Solace of the wretched, pray for us. Hope of the sick, pray for us. Patron of the dying, pray for us. Terror of the demons, pray for us. Protector of the Holy Church, pray for us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, spare us, O Lord. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, graciously hear us, O Lord. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Have mercy on us. He made him the Lord of his household. And prince over all his possessions. Let us pray. O God, in your ineffable providence, you were pleased to choose blessed Joseph to be the spouse of your most holy mother. Grant, we beg you, that we may be worthy to have him for our intercessor in heaven, whom on earth we venerate as our protector. You who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. 
Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show in prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Son of God, from the beginning, you were with the Father. Now you are seen as man. Grant us a love for all human beings. You took the form of a slave so that by your humility, we might rise to share the effect of your glory. Make us faithful ministers of your gospel. We were without hope and without God. You have given us grace upon grace from your fullness. Enable us to bring your hope to our brothers and sisters in this world. Give us an upright and sincere heart to hear your word. Show forth in us and in the world the fruit of your glorification. Put the seeds of truth in our hearts. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and today we're heading to the archives to visit some of the best interviews from Matt and me of days past. And coming up this hour, we'll talk to Daniel Garland of the Institute of Catholic Culture about the temple as a prefigurement of the nativity. Michelle Burke-Bow will join us to tell us more about the Holy Family Hospital in Bethlehem. Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio will reflect on the very important role of Joseph in the nativity and in the early life of Jesus. Rita Heikenfeld will tell us about the Victorian manger herb tradition. And Steve Ray will join us to talk about the nativity and the little town of Bethlehem throughout the scriptures. Hope you can stick around for the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Daniel Garland is with us now. He is the Associate Director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Daniel, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be back. Okay, we're going to talk about the temple in the Old Testament, of course, uh, the ultimate place of worship in the Old Testament. How does the temple point us to the nativity of our Lord? Yes, well, to, to understand this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, right? Genesis 1 and 2, and see that uh, when God creates the world, he creates it as a cosmic temple. Um, there's, there's parallels we see in, in the Old Testament between uh, the creation of the world and Moses' construction of the tabernacle, which is basically a moving uh, temple that the Israelites worship in when they're in the wilderness. And then there's also some parallels between uh, the construction of the first temple under Solomon. And so we see that the world is this cosmic temple, and right there in the middle, the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies. And Adam is placed in the garden to be the first priest, and he has, he's given dominion over all the earth. So he's a royal priest. And his, his goal, his, his task is to uh, dwell with God and worship God, um, but also to expand the Garden of Eden, the Holy of Holies, to the whole earth, so that all earth is holy to God. But as we know, the fall happens, and he's kicked out of Eden, the Holy of Holies. But God doesn't abandon him. God, uh, as a loving father, continually tries to draw back uh, his, his people, back to this, what I like to call uh, the Edenic ideal, this, this state of dwelling with God. And so we see this through the Old Testament, primarily with the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. It's a place for... Uh, 
the, the temple is the place where they can go into this Edenic uh, place of worship. And for that point, that in, in that worship, they're going back to Eden. And so you have the first temple under Solomon, which is this uh, massive structure with mass amounts of gold, silver, bronze, precious stones used to create it. And at a time, it, it looks like things are going well. You, this is, they're, they're, they found the way back to Eden. But then, you know, as the history of the Davidic kings and, and the kings in the northern uh, divided kingdom, uh, they're not so good, right? They, they fall so many times, and then they, they're, they're restored, and then they fall again. And then you have the Assyrian uh, uh, conquest and the Babylonian exile. And with the Babylonian exile, Solomon's temple is destroyed. It's raised to the ground. And so this is a crisis for uh, the people of Israel. Um, and then when they come back after the exile, we see this in the book of Ezra, they rebuild the temple, the second temple. But there's a problem. Those who, had saw, who were old enough to see the original Solomon's temple in all its glory, uh, they recognize that this second temple pales in comparison. Um, yet those who visited Jerusalem on pilgrimage, they marveled at its beauty. It was still quite impressive. And then we, we go to the time of, uh, right before the time of Christ, and you have Herod the Great, and he's the great architect of the ancient world, and he builds this massive uh, temple on top of the second temple. And it, this is a sight to see. It's one of the ancient wonders of uh, the world. And this is the context in which Christ is born as a little baby. It's, it's an awesome contrast when you think about it. You, everybody's focused on this gigantic temple built by Herod, but there in the manger is this little baby who has so much more glory than Herod's temple could ever have, so much more glory than Solomon's temple could have. And, and John points this out in his gospel, in his prologue, chapter 1. Right away he starts, in the beginning was the Word, which recalls us back to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. And so if there's a new creation, there's going to be a new temple too. During Mass, when we see a piece of bread become the body of Christ that we can receive, how does that then also take us back to Bethlehem? Yes, so uh, Bethlehem, uh, in the Hebrew, Bethlehem, literally is the house of bread. Um, and so the true bread, the heavenly bread that came down, uh, you know, you have uh, the manna coming down in the Old Testament with Moses, is a type of this true bread, who is Christ, coming down in the place called house of bread. So all this comes together, and then later on he gives himself as bread, his body and his blood, under the appearances of bread and wine. Daniel, how can knowing all of this help us more fully appreciate Advent and subsequently Christmas? Yeah, it, you know, it, it can orient us to uh, the truth of what the Nativity celebrates. You know, we we see all these major scenes, this little baby, and it's nice, it's cute, and so forth. I think sometimes we're, we get used to it too much, and we forget that this is... This is God. This is God who is the, the temple, right? The temple is the dwelling place of God, and it receives its glory because God dwells there. Well, Christ, it's not just God dwelling there. It's God himself. Mm -hmm. And so we should remember that. We should recall whenever we see a nativity scene, it's not just a cute baby there. It's our Lord and Savior. And so instead of focusing on, as the ancient world focuses on Herod's temple, 
And and for us, it's money, power, sports, Kansas City. No, you know, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we should re- forget that stuff and orient ourselves to Christ and remember what this season is truly focused on. It's it's focused on Christ in all his glory who has come amongst us for us to worship him and receive him in his precious body and blood in the Eucharist. We've been talking to Daniel Garland of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you so much, Daniel, for your time today. Thank you. It's the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. For 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have followed in the footsteps of their founders and Daniel Comboni. We are an active missionary group sharing our deep faith in God through service to the poorest and most abandoned people around the world, satisfying both the physical and spiritual needs of the people in our mission. Please support our mission work with a generous year-end gift today. Thank you for your prayers and kindness. Give today at kombonimissionaries.org. That is kombonimissionaries.org. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, lighthouse work, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Okay, I've been a Catholic for five years, but I suffered under a lot of things due to my Protestantism as a Pentecostal, and I just want to personally ask God to bless you for your ministry, for everything you do, and the help that you give people. EWTN helping people grow in their love and understanding of God. I'm happy to have on the program now Michelle Burke Bow. She's president of the Holy Family Hospital of Bethlehem Foundation. Michelle, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing great, thank you. Happy to have you on. Now, can you just, first of all, give us an overview, tell us about the Holy Family Hospital in Bethlehem? Yes, it's a Catholic maternity and infant hospital with an 18-bed neonatal intensive care unit. It's located just 1,500 steps from where the Christ child was born. Wow. Can you give us an idea of just how important that NICU, the intensive unit for newborns, is in this region? You know, it is the um, only NICU with that care level in the entire West Bank of Palestine. And what that means is that if there is a mother who has been determined early on is going to have a uh, pregnancy which has uh, critical care needs, such as... um, having twins, perhaps having uh, untreated gestational diabetes, um, or any kind of a cardiac issue, that mother really has to deliver at our hospital because it's those uh, 
critical moments before and just after birth where the lives are saved. And, of course, we know that this region of the world is is rife with all kinds of um, political conflicts, uh, particularly when you think of, of the Jewish and Muslim populations and, of course, the, the very small Christian population in that area. Do you you serve everyone? We serve absolutely everyone. And really, we're an ecumenical hospital. Our practitioners are all Palestinian. Our um, staff is Muslim, our staff is Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, and we serve anyone who comes through the door. And it's um, one of the things I really just love this time of year is to uh, think about how we're all journeying to Bethlehem, mm. and those, um, those denizens, those citizens of current-day Bethlehem were the first shepherds who heard the Gloria and climbed up to the hill where the manger was. And today it's their descendants who are the patients at the hospital and are the uh, practitioners. So it's really, it's a very special place. A really incredible thought. How does the hospital serve refugees? Well, it's interesting. In the Middle East, we hear a lot about refugees um, coming from Iraq and Syria. Um, In Palestine, because of the construct of the walls through occupation, it's the only refugees are Palestinian refugees, and they were either displaced in 1948 or um, 1967 or 1973. And, and you have mobile units that go out and, and serve people who are living in refugee camps. We do. We have um, a mobile unit that goes out every day with a pediatrician and an obstetrician gynecologist. And it makes um, the same stops each week in uh, some refugee camps and in some Bedouin encampments. And it does prenatal checkups for women. It does um, women who are past the childbearing age. And we have a delightful pediatrician who um, not only sees the patients that the parents bring, but also sort of scans the uh, crowd of kids that gathers around to see who's in need of some sort of screening or testing. You know, it's really interesting thinking about it from that perspective, that this is a hospital that really serves people that don't have a place to lay their head. There's no room at the inn for them, if you will. Indeed. Holy Family Hospital is what we call the modern-day manger. Mm-hmm. No one is ever turned away. We subsidize all treatment at least 50 percent, and we have a, um, a very saintly social worker who screens patients who are in need to um, give a sliding scale, which goes down to zero. Is this an area that is pretty safe for people to to get to the hospital? You know, it's absolutely safe. I'm there about every other month. But because it is military occupation, sometimes there are um, pop-up checkpoints or things like that. So it's, you know, for the most part at the hospital, we don't have set appointment times. We just say to somebody, well, please come in the morning. And if we're out in the mobile van and we notice a woman has a baby um, gestationally that's too big or too small, we'll say, you know, come come sometime tomorrow or come sometime, you know, Tuesday. And they just are um, just so beautifully patient and they sit and they wait and they visit with people and then they're, um, they're seen as, the, uh, as their turn comes up. Well, you mentioned that you visit the hospital about every other month. Um, is there a story that sticks out to you in your mind? You know, there, there's a, a really beautiful story. It's a woman that I've um, come to notice over the past um, couple of years. 
and she's a, um, a young woman, and when she was recently married married and hoping for a baby, it was taking a little longer than she had hoped. <laughs> and she would, um, you know, come into the hospital for checkups to see, you know, if there were any issues, and she would often sit in the courtyard next to our chapel where we have a beautiful um, statue of the Blessed Mother, and she would just sit there and quietly pray, and she eventually had the great news of having um, a pregnancy, and everything was going really well until just about the time of delivery when she um, developed preeclampsia, mm-hmm. and it was um, a really scary time for her and her husband um, and for the baby, and um, thank God for our really good practitioners that they were able to save the mother and save her baby. And when I was there, I saw her sitting in the courtyard praying, and I wondered, you know, was she praying a prayer of thanksgiving, or maybe she was praying for a little brother, a little sister for her son. And sure enough, I went up and chatted with her, and she's now pregnant with her second baby. Oh, incredible. What a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. We've been talking to Michelle Burke-Bow. She's the president of the Holy Family Hospital of Bethlehem Foundation. Find out more information at birthplaceofhope.org. Michelle, thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, you do the same, Michelle. And, of course, you can find this information about the Holy Family Hospital linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Of course, uh, this is a great reminder this time of year about how much the incarnation informs what we believe about the sanctity of life. You know, Anna, I was thinking um, as I was listening to you all uh, talk about the Holy Family Hospital and, and, you know, what it means to think about Jesus being born, you know, in a particular place at a particular time and just how real that makes uh, the incarnation to us. Uh, And I was thinking back to a few years back when we had the Nicene Creed and a bunch of other things in the Mass, the language altered just slightly. I don't know if you recall. Do you remember well enough what the Nicene Creed used to say when we professed at Mass? It said, He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born he was of the Virgin bo- Mary and became yeah. man. He was right? born of the Virgin Mary and became man, right? Right. Uh, the, tra- the change in the translation now says he was incarnate of the Virgin, of Mary. The Virgin Mary mm-hmm. and became man. He was man before he was born of the Virgin Mary. Yes. Right? And that's the, the creed testifies to the fact that from the moment that Gabriel says to Mary that something special is happening in you, Jesus is man. Jesus is human. He's fully human and human divine at that moment of his conception in the womb of Mary. And so we have that duty to care for life from the moment of conception. And, and, you know, the incarnation is a constant reminder of that. We hear that in the creeds every time we go to Mass. Absolutely. It's such a good point to make because sometimes we hear people say that the Feast of the Nativity is the Feast of the Incarnation. And that's not actually precise. It would be the the Feast of the Annunciation when we are really celebrating the Word become flesh. Of course, during the Christmas readings, uh, we hear that that beautiful passage from the Gospel of John, sort of John's version of the Nativity, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we hear that at Christmas time, but Really, the Word became flesh on March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation. And let's not forget that, you know, what's March 25th plus nine months? Right. That's December December 25th. 25th. So, you know, Advent starts, you know, about four weeks before Christmas actually happens. But in a sense, we're kind of in Advent starting at the Annunciation um, in some ways, because that's when we remember um, that, that Mary is carrying... Jesus in her womb all of those months. And so it's a, it's an important reminder, I think, and I'm grateful for the work that Holy Family Hospital is doing. And we've had them on every year just to talk about this because 
you know, it was crazy in Jesus's time to be pregnant <laughs> and bring children to bear there in Bethlehem and in the Holy Land. And it's crazy today. And people yeah, need our support. Possibly even more crazy today in some ways, given all of the political situation and strife that happens in that part of the world that, you know, oh my gosh, the the suffering that happens in the Middle East and to know that this hospital is reaching out to anyone who needs help and has this NICU for any baby who needs help is just beautiful. Yeah, and of course, uh, if you want to find more information about them or find information about any of our guests that you hear on the Sunrise Morning Show, we encourage you to go to sunrisemorningshow.com. Again, that's sunrisemorningshow.com. It's 21 minutes past the hour. This is Father Rob Jack with the Catechism Moment. People have often asked me why they have to go to confession. The Catechism teaches that one must confess their sins if they are in a state of mortal sin. Paragraph 2042 also states that we must confess our sins once a year. But are those the only times we ought to make use of the sacrament? Paragraph 1458 teaches this, Without being strictly necessary, confession of everyday faults, which are venial sins, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the Church. Indeed, the regular confession of our venial sins helps us to form our conscience, fight against evil tendencies, and let ourselves be healed by Christ and progress in the life of the Spirit. A big area of focus in healthcare nowadays is preventative medicine. Frequent confession is the same type of preventative medicine for our souls. Our spiritual lives need constant attention. There are temptations that we face every day. We get tired and we get frustrated or we're hurt, and that is when the devil tends to strike us. And while a perfect act of contrition and a devout reception of the Holy Eucharist removes venial sins, the encouragement and the compassion of a good priest confessor helps to strengthen us. The priest becomes for us an instrument of God's mercy who not only has the authority to absolve sins, but can also give us concrete advice on how to seek things that bring us closer to God and also ways to deal with temptation and sin when it occurs. So, if we take seriously the need to address venial sins, it will give us the grace and prudence to avoid mortal sin. I encourage you to make a good confession of your sins every six weeks to two months. That will keep your soul alive with the presence of our merciful God. The Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Mike Aquilina from FathersOfTheChurch.com. And we're going to talk about one of the church fathers who has some of the most profound and beautiful things to say about Christmas, St. Ephraim the Syrian. Mike, good morning. Morning, Matt. So the fact that St. Ephraim's name is Ephraim the Syrian, this means that he was born close to where Christ lived and had his ministry. What do we know about the life of St. Ephraim himself? Well, we know that he grew up in a culture that was Semitic. Uh, it was very much like the culture that our Lord lived in, and uh, and there was a rich Jewish element to it. So he was familiar with a lot of the customs, uh, a lot of the language that our Lord knew, and he was able to offer really profound and poetic interpretations of the Holy Scriptures. 
he was especially interested in Christmas, and uh, and he wrote many many hymns about the nativity of our Lord, about the conception of our Lord. He was especially interested in Mary's role in the whole thing. And these, I think, were common concerns among uh, Christians at that time who were close to the origins of Christianity, who knew the Jewish Christian culture that was there at the beginning, the culture that the apostles themselves fostered. Uh, Ephraim just imbibed this uh, in, in his early life, and he, um, he wrote poetry that was deeply Semitic, deeply Christian, and very much in touch with its Old Testament origins. He is known to history best as a hymnographer, a writer of hymns, and he wrote many, many Christmas carols, so to speak. Some of them are are in translation in English and still used today. Uh, but he also did a lot of good works himself. He 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 was one of the founders of the institution that today today we know as the hospital. You know, he founded one of the first hospitals in a time of need in his land. He lived near the borders in in Syria at the border of the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire so he he experienced a lot of war uh, during his lifetime he had a difficult life and yet a deeply christian life and he lived the virtue of hope to a heroic de- degree well advent and christmas are all about hope and when you read saint ephraim and you read his life and you read his works uh, you know for me i think of uh, two other great saints right you see a person who's a theologian but also a poet much like another doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, but you also see a man who is deeply moved uh, by the Incarnation and constantly reflecting on it, uh, much like St. Francis of Assisi would be a thousand years later. And, and of course, all of this is in, is in the context of the rise of the Arian heresy, and there's this whole question about uh, who was it that was born in Bethlehem? Uh, was it fully God? Uh, was it fully man? Was it fully both? So uh, what are the things that he reflects upon when he's writing about the birth of Jesus? He reflects upon Scripture mostly, uh, but he tries to, to tease out the meaning of Scripture. He tries to get into, into the psychology of the characters in the scriptural account uh, and, and what's going on physically and metaphysically at this time and, and, uh, and trying to, to, um, to make a jibe with what he knew of Christian doctrine, because Christian doctrine at that time was fairly well established. I mean, there were still heretics sniping at it from from all directions, but he was able to um, to respond to them in uh, in his poetry and enter the imagination of congregations and really change hearts, change minds, using the feasts every year. I mean, that's one of the reasons we celebrate these feasts, is to remind ourselves of the most important things in life, the most important things in the world, and allow ourselves to be changed by the, the reality that's behind the feast. His hymns do that in a most powerful, powerful way. They're deep poetry, and apparently in the originals, they were very catchy melodies as well. Uh, so, so they were able to spread like wildfire and spread good doctrine and good devotion at the same time, inspiring ordinary people to great love. All right. Do you have any samples then of this <laughs> great Christmas poet of the church? Yeah, here's one, and this is just one in a book-length uh, collection of his Christmas hymns. The Lord entered her and became a servant. The Word entered her and became silent within her. Thunder entered her, and his voice was still. The Shepherd of all entered her. He became a lamb in her. 
The belly of your mother changed the order of things, O you who order all. Rich he went in, he came out poor. The high one went into her, he came out lowly. Brightness went into her and clothed himself, and came forth a despised form. He that gives food to all went in and knew hunger. He who gives drink to all went in and knew thirst. Naked and bare came forth from her, the clother of all things in beauty. That's profound. It's beautiful. And, uh, and, and it, it, it represents so many of the, uh, the, the, the great interests of Ephraim and also the great interests of ordinary people. You know, we all have this, this desire in us to know what can this mean? What can it mean that eternity intersects with time? What can it mean that the finite contains the infinite? What can it mean that God becomes man? All of these things that seem impossible, we know to be true. We know to be facts. We know to be historical events. Ephraim could look at that and marvel at it and put all of that wonder into words that we could take on as our own and sing in hymns every Christmas. This is what he did for congregations in his own time. This is what he does for congregations still today. Because again, these hymns are sung all through the Christian East, and some of them have been translated into English for us as well. And he really helps us understand a little bit uh, about how Mariology and Christology have to be connected. Uh, they have to be connected, and they would develop over the centuries and continue to uh, be reflected upon. Um, I'm just looking at some of the lines that he has to say about uh, what does it mean that God uh, became small, right? <laughs> um, he says this, he says, All creation were too small to conceal your majesty, heaven and earth too narrow to be in the likeness of wings to cover your Godhead. Too small for you was the bosom of earth, but great enough for you was the bosom of Mary. I mean, yes. anybody who wants to diminish Mary in the Christmas story has not thought a thought like that from Ephraim the Syrian. <laughs> yes, and and uh, and he, of course, was the great uh, precursor to 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 great dogmas that were defined later on when the popes wanted to promulgate the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. They went to Ephraim, and he was he was their justification. He was steeped not only in the culture of the New Testament, but also in the words of the Old Testament. And he saw so much of the Old Testament as uh, foreshadowing, as prefiguring the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the, the Paschal mystery of Christ. And he just sees this everywhere, and he's exuberant about it. He's always invoking um, these passages from both the Old Testament and the New Testament in an explosive way. And he celebrates this in his hymns as well. He says, was that a symbol? This Jesus has made so many symbols for us. I am sinking amid the waves of his symbols. He has pictured for us the raising of the dead by every kind of symbol and type. He could see that the Bible was one book with a single plot that ran from Genesis through Revelation and whose author was planting seeds in the Old Testament that would flourish in the New Testament, that would blossom in the New Testament and come to the fullness of truth in the New Testament. And then Ephraim would sing these realities in his hymns, and we can sing them too today. Yeah, it's powerful. Uh, I mean, if anybody out there has not yet picked up anything from St. Ephraim the Syrian, do so. You know, I, of course, love G.K. Chesterton, and Chesterton loved Paradox, and there's Paradox just shot through all the writings of St. Ephraim. You've touched on some of them, but Ephraim also writes, 
there is laid before me a child older than all things. <laughs> I mean, contemplate that. I mean, yes. this is the mystery of Christmas. What a wonderful gift we have in this doctor of the church who a lot of people probably haven't really done much uh, work to uh, to find out about. How much uh, out there is there of St. Ephraim's work related to Christmas? Well, there's a lot. Uh, you know, Paulist Press has a book in its in its um, uh, Classics of Western Spirituality series. Also, St. Vladimir's Seminary Press has has a, a volume out as well. So you can get these and, and kind of steep yourself in that marvel, in that sense of wonder. And I think then Christmas will be more for you than it is for people who just kind of ride the wave of television commercials and uh and and the ads that show up in your in your feed and all of the 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 decorations and customs that seem to come to a screeching halt at the end of christmas night uh you know there's that 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 depression that sets in for many people on december 26th and it should not be that way because Christmas is in the calendar, so that will revive, will recover our sense of wonder, and that that will sustain us over at least eight days, right, through the octave of Christmas, but then even beyond that, through the season of Christmas, until we're finally at another season, and that momentum will keep us going forward from there. If we're tuned into the calendar, we're tuned into life at its deepest level, and we have momentum to go forward. The calendar is a catechism, as uh, as one of the great rabbis said. But the calendar is much more than than a, a catechism. It's this thing that um that really fires us through the year. It's rocket fuel to get us through the year from one end to the next. I I love being Catholic because of the calendar, and uh, and Christmas seems to be the feast that captures the Christian imagination and and um and expresses it for all of our senses in 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 uh, in more powerful ways than any others. Christmas may or may not be the most important feast, but it's definitely the one that engages all of our senses. There are special foods for the day, special hymns for the day, you know, special special decorations that we put up. So all of our senses are engaged in this holiday and its meaning. That's the incarnation. You know, God has has taken flesh and dwelt among us, and he's affected everything around us. We can see this, smell it, hear it at Christmas, and it's a beautiful thing. And it's captured so well in the writings of St. Ephraim the Syrian, Doctor of the Church. Mike Aquilina, if we want to connect with you and learn more about the Fathers, how do we do so? Fathersofthechurch.com Linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks so much, Mike, and have a Merry Christmas. Thanks, Matt. You too. I'm Matt Swain. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. We know you love waking up to the Sunrise Morning Show with a hot cup of Mystic Monk coffee. And if you're looking for decaf options to have something to warm you up at the end of the day, the Mystic Monks have the coffee and tea for you. And you can earn us a commission that supports the show when you shop after clicking the Mystic Monk link at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to also check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Find our swag and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. Some figures in the Bible remain a mystery to us. Such a figure is Elihu from the book of Job. He suddenly speaks up after all others have chosen to remain silent. 
Some wonder if he makes any real contribution to the book of Job at all. On the other hand, he may make a real contribution to Job's story and bring Job around. After all, it's after Elihu's address to Job that God appears to Job. The rabbis seem to have had a very high opinion of Elihu. At one point in his address to Job, Elihu announces that his knowledge is a gift from God. The rabbis held the opinion that if Elihu said this on his own, he was worthy of praise. They also said that if Elihu said this through the Spirit of God, he was worthy of the highest praise. Once again, perhaps the literature wants us to ponder this character of Elihu, and we can ask ourselves, what are we doing for God that makes us worthy of praise? For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. I always get excited when we get to talk about Victorian manger herbs with Rita Heikenfeld of AboutEating.com, a tradition that I'm only familiar with because Rita clued me into it. Rita, good morning. Well, good morning, Matt. All right, so this whole idea of Victorian manger herbs, where does it come from? Well, the, um, they started in the Victorian era, and during the Christmas seasons, uh, herbs were used in not only holiday foods back then and to scent the holiday atmosphere, they also put them in the, their manger scenes, and just like today, were a, really a popular decoration at that time. Um, some of them were really quite flamboyant, so they were beautiful. And then in the manger mat, special herbs were part of the legend actually surrounding the Christmas story. Um, and you're right, these herbs are called manger herbs, and the herbs, again, that had the legend that says Mary used uh, to make Jesus' bed with those herbs in the cattle manger. And, of course, we know him as the future king. So in Victorian households, this is a little story that was told on Christmas, and the, I think the legend is just such a meaningful one to pass on, especially when you're setting up your manger scene. And, of course, stuff that's not in the Bible, but still stuff that uses the symbolism of Christ's divinity, his kingship, and everything else to try and tell a little bit of a story. Uh, one of those items, ladies' bed straw, tell us about that. Oh, you know, Mary used that to line the manger um, and to lull J- uh, Jesus to sleep. Here's the legend. It says that Joseph was the one who gathered the herbs and grasses. He went out to do that, to line Jesus' manger. And one of those, Matt, is called bed straw. It was really a common stable plant. Farmers fed it to their cows so that their cows would have sweeter milk. And I grow bed straw, and it has a wonderful honey-like scent when you crush it. And then people used to stuff their mattresses with bed straw, too. Um, It was really common and stable, so it makes sense that she would use that in the manger. But here's another uh, legend. It says, until this night, the stories say, it wasn't anything more than an everyday weed with plain white flowers and no fragrance. But when the Christ child's head touched the bed straw mat, the plant was forever changed. Its blossoms turned golden, and its narrow leaves were imbued with a real sweet, fresh scent. So isn't that just a nice legend to think about what happened when Jesus' little head was laid on bed straw? It became something more than just a common weed. 
And it's also a very calming herb. So the legend has it that the flowers were originally white, but they turned golden for the tiny king. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, an indication of the fact that, you know, Jesus would go around touching people and <laughs> making them not the same for all of his public ministry. Now, uh, uh, so let's also talk about chamomile, which I know calms me down. Oh, yeah, you know, you're right. It's a calming herbal tea that we use a lot today. Um, and the reason Mary put that in, you think of apple-scented chamomile. It was, again, a real popular herb during Victorian times for tea, um, as you just mentioned. But uh, people also dried the flowers, not just the leaves, and they made what we call a tisane, sort of a tea made of flowers. And, yep, it calmed the nerves and reduced headaches. So it would, be, would have been a great little herb for the manger. And, of course, lavender is kind of a similar thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mary laid the swaddling clothes of Jesus on a lavender bush to dry. And here's the deal. His clothes, the legend said, had a beautiful, fresh scent. And the flowers of the lavender plant actually took that scent up. And that's what we know now as lavender. Um, and even then and even today, we use lavender to freshen our linens um, and also in bedding and sick rooms. But back in Victorian days, they put lavender uh, sprigs in their closets and cupboards to deter moths. And so they say that no Victorian home could do without lavender, especially during the Christmas season. Well, rosemary included in the Victorian manger herb scene, not because it was necessarily present at the stable, but because it was involved in the Holy Family's journey. Oh, yeah. Uh, during the Roman census, they had to travel about 90 miles uh, to the city of Joseph's ancestors. So they went south along the flatlands of the Jordan River. Then they had to go west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem and then on into Bethlehem. But during their journey, um, the, the legend says the rosemary shrub stayed silent while all the other bushes crackled and snapped when they passed through them. And then Mary was so grateful to the rosemary bushes, Matt, since noises, when you think of that journey, noises of any kind may have alerted robbers or wild animals. So what she did, she hung her cloak on a rosemary bush, and the formerly, again, white flowers turned blue in her honor. Let's talk a little bit about pennyroyal. Oh, yeah. You know, pennyroyal, I grow it in my, the Bible portion of my herb garden, and it's a real low-growing herb. Um, and back in Jesus' day, again, the legend said it never did flower. But Joseph put it in the manger because he loved the minty scent. Um, so that's why he picked it for Jesus' bed. And at the moment that Jesus was born, the little herb supposedly burst into bloom, but not just any blossom. The pennyroyal's blossoms, even today, burst into, they burst into bright purple then, and even today they're bright purple. When, now, when you think of purple and the color of kings, it really matches, because purple's like a, a royal hue that's really fit for a king. And, you know, when I think of this, when I put in my manger herbs, I, I can just imagine Mary sort of smiling, you know, the baby just sleeping among the flowers and those fragrant herbs. And if you go to Cracker Barrel, you can pick up some whorehound candy. Not many people know whorehound is a bitter herb. Yeah, you're exactly right. It is called one of the bitter, bitter herbs. And Mary was real sad when she saw whorehound in with the manger plants. And the reason Joseph brought it to her... Um, Whorehound, if you feel it, has real soft leaves, sort of like a blanket, but um, it was also believed to have healing powers. But here's the deal. The reason she was saddened was uh, we say that the whorehound plant foretold of the sorrows in Jesus' future. But when you uh, put 
core hound in with other plants, it, it just tangles up and, and sort of just takes over. So what happened was the whorehound was put in the major, major and it smelled very nice and healing, but uh, Mary tried to pick out the leaves uh, from the bed straw. But as I said, the stems and the plant were really twined tightly among the other herbs and grasses. And again, the symbolism here, Matt, is that some things just can't be changed, and we all have challenges in our life. But um, when you think of this, when Mary picked through the straw and tried to pick the whorehound out, she found there was another herb in there that Joseph had put in, and it was thyme. And thyme, of course, is a symbol of courage and endurance. And it still grows wild in the hills of Jerusalem. And not only that, but it really cleanses the air. So in spite of the fact that whorehound was in there, there was other herbs to sort of counteract it, like thyme. So it's just an analogy that, yeah, nobody has a perfect life. So we just have to, um, what we always say, let go and let God. And those bitter herbs, of course, are part of the Passover, um, and they predicted Jesus' Jesus's death and the bitterness of his passion. Of course, even—and we'll talk about this uh, later when the Three Kings brought gifts. One of them was myrrh, which is a burial spice to indicate the uh, the fact that Jesus was uh, coming to this world to give his life uh, for us. So, yeah, there's a lot of that really right there from the cradle. And uh, th- there are so many other herbs that we don't have time to get to this morning. But before we let you go, I hate to— leave you without you telling us about this slow-cooked beef brisket recipe you want to share. Oh, it's so good. Oven slow-cooked beef brisket. Really, really delicious. Um, And the ingredients are real common. A brisket, chili sauce, dry onion soup, and a can of regular Coke. And basically what you do is you you put the brisket in a 350-degree oven, um, and you mix all the sauce ingredients um, and pour it over the roast, and you cover that for about an hour. Then the good thing is you turn the temperature down to 250, and you roast it again, covered for about four to five hours, believe it or not, Matt. And what you have is a wonderful falling-apart roast, delicious gravy. We serve it with mashed potatoes, um, and briskets are, are good deals right now in the grocery store, too. So just a nice little winter meal. That sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to be trying this one uh, in the next week or to- a week or so. Rita Heikenfeld, thanks so much for being with us. We've got abouteating.com as well as your recipe for long and slow cooked beef brisket linked on our site. Have a blessed day. And I'll talk to you next week, Matt. I'm Matt Swain. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. 
Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. St. Augustine gives us tremendous insight as to why we should pray. He says this, Why God should ask us to pray when He knows what we need even before we ask Him may perplex us if we do not realize that our Lord and God does not want to know what we want, for as God, He cannot fail to already know it. But rather, He wants us to exercise our desire through our prayers so that we may be able to receive what He is preparing to give us. talking about the nativity today with Steve Ray, a man who is quite familiar with the places involved in the nativity story. Steve online at catholicconvert.com. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Annie. Nice to talk with you this morning. It's nice to talk to you. Now, let's start with uh, just looking at the the accounts of the nativity based in the Gospels. They're a little bit different, aren't they? Yes, they are, because when you have um, two different people explaining a situation uh, from their own perspective, you get two different stories, although they don't contradict. They are just two different angles. For example, if there's an accident in the main intersection and you see one person watches it from the 17th floor of the Hilton Hotel on the corner, one person's in the car in the accident, another person's standing over on the street corner, you may see it different ways. You have a different perspective. And this is kind of what it's like, because Matthew and Luke are the ones that tell the story of Jesus' nativity. John and Mark don't, and there's a reason why, but Matthew tells the story from Joseph's perspective, and Luke tells the story of the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. And each one does it in a different way. Each story tells about the genealogy or the, or the origins of Jesus from a different perspective. For example, Matthew is presenting Jesus to the Jews as the king. Mark is presenting him to the Romans as a servant, as the one who is a, it's all about he did this, he served there, he came to serve. And so the king, you always know his genealogy. That's very important. But who cares about the genealogy of a servant? So you have these two opposites, king and servant, and one has a great genealogy from Joseph's perspective, and who is the son of David, and the other has no genealogy because it's about a servant. servant. But then you also have two other opposites. In John, you have Jesus presented as being God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what's the genealogy there? Exactly that. He was with God from all of beginning, and then he became flesh in verse 14. And then in the opposite one is Luke. He's presenting Jesus as the ideal man, as the one who's, who's the one who is fulfilled what man, uh, humanity really should be, the one who comes down, the ideal man. And there you have another genealogy that takes you all the way back to Adam and Eve. So you have these different perspectives, 
but Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective, and the angels come to speak to Joseph in that story. Doesn't they, You don't say anything about angels coming to speak to Mary. There are only angels coming to speak to Joseph. And then in Luke, you have the story from Mary's perspective, and you have the angel coming to speak to Mary. Very interesting. Okay, so tell us about the, the various levels of history with Bethlehem. This is really fun to do, and it goes back 4,000 years. There's Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob is traveling from the north, and he's going south through Jerusalem and down through Bethlehem to go to Hebron. And as he passes through Bethlehem, his wife, Rachel, is very pregnant, and she gives birth on the way. They were tough back in those days. She got off her camel, got down, had the baby, (laughs) and she died. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin in Bethlehem. They buried her on the side of the road at the entrance into Bethlehem, and then he continued on his journey. Now, that's the first step. You find that she's buried there. By the way, her tomb is still there today. You can still go to Rachel's tomb uh, 4,000 years later. I have it in my movie, David and Solomon. And then you have the, um, and, and you know, that's an interesting point, too, that she's buried there on the side of the road. She was nine months pregnant and gave birth as she's entering Bethlehem. Don't think that Joseph, when he's coming down the same road, today it's called the Hebron Road. It's still the same because it goes between Jerusalem and Hebron. Don't think Joseph, when he's got Mary and she's nine months pregnant, and they walk into Bethlehem and he looks over to his right, and there is the tomb of his matriarch. Mm-hmm. He's thinking, oh, dear God, don't let that happen to us. And then he can't even find a place for Mary to have the baby. Just imagine you walk by and you remember that that Rachel died right here at nine months pregnant. And then you have the next story, that's of Ruth. Many people know about Ruth. She was the, um, well, she was the Moabite. She was from the other side of the Jordan Valley from a, a pagan uh, peoples, but she came back with her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she, that was the fields of Bethlehem. So that's where Ruth lived. In fact, there are places that are called the Field of Bethlehem Restaurant and so on because they name it after her. Well, then she marries Boaz, and they have Obed. Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David. David. And that's why it's called the city of David in the Gospel of Luke. And so David is born there in Bethlehem as well, and not knowing himself that there was someday going to become a great king who was going to be called the son of David, who would be the Messiah and the king of all the universe and save the people from their sins. But David, there was a shepherd boy outside and around in Bethlehem. That's where he wrote the 23rd Psalm. I'm convinced of it. For The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so on. These beautiful Psalms, I think, were written, many of them, right from the, the countryside of Jerusalem. And then we come to Malachi chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we find the verse that says, O little town of Bethlehem. Somebody didn't just write that hymn. That came right out of the prophet Micah, because he said, in the little town of Bethlehem will come for you, or even though you're such a small little village in the, in the area of Judah, but yet from you will come the great king, the savior. So then that happens. And then 400 years later, Mary and Joseph are going down the road. They get called to Bethlehem for a census, and the and Rome didn't realize that they were just helping to fulfill a prophecy when they said, you have to go to the town of your fathers. So Joseph has to travel there. They didn't realize that that was being done so that the prophecy could be fulfilled, that even though Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, they had to travel 100 miles, and they didn't have air-conditioned buses like we did. They had to walk eight for over 100 miles to get to Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem so that the prophecy of, of Micah would be fulfilled that the baby would be born in Bethlehem. And they arrive there and there's no place in the inn for them. They have to stay in a stable. And we know that because it says Mary placed the baby in a manger. Now, here's an interesting thing. Why another interesting little comment is why does Mary have to go to Bethlehem to give birth to the baby? Well, who is in her womb? He is the bread of life. The name Bethlehem is two words, Bet-Lachem. It means house of bread. Mm. Mary has the bread of life in her womb. She's going to the house of bread to deliver the bread. And wow. where does she put Mary at the first moment? Where does Mary put? I bet you you didn't put your baby in a manger, a food trough for animals. No, nope, they didn't I, have that at the hospital. Got to say. I didn't have that there where you were. <laughs> uh, we didn't when we were, had our four kids either. But the interesting thing is I think Mary put the baby in a manger, which is a food dish, because she was telling us from the very moment of his beginning of his life that he was going to become our food. Mm-hmm. All these things fit together so well when you meditate on Scripture, when you pray over it and think about it and learn the meaning of names and words. So Mary puts him in a food dish. And by the way, Annie, I like to ask people this too when we're there. Why were the shepherds the first ones to be known about, uh, to know about the birth of Jesus? It wasn't to the king. It wasn't to nobility. It was to the lowly shepherds. Why were they the first to know about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Because shepherds are always the first to know about the birth of a lamb. Jesus Hmm. is the lamb of God. Of course, they would know it first. Wow. If uh, listeners want to check out more of your resources on the nativity and all kinds of other things, where can they go? They go to my website, CatholicConvert.com, Catholic Convert. And if you go to my past pilgrimages, you can see whole videos of walking through Bethlehem and see all this stuff for yourself in our videos. Very cool. Thank you so much, Steve Ray. That will do it for this special Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swain and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.